Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to SFP Now. Hello and welcome to another exciting, pulse-pounding episode of SFP Now. Um, our special guest, who will be on the show later on, is um, director and producer Ari Novak, who's going to be talking about um, his new film, uh, Cowboys vs. Dinosaurs, which is um, it's probably it's probably going to be on the Sci-Fi Channel at some point, and I've got to say, it looks like a lot of fun, especially after you've had a few drinks, but... <laughs> <laughs> I digress. Um, joining me for the uh, first part of the show are Craig McKenzie, um, who who, um, who actually runs and does the Neil Before Blog website, and um, our good friend Raisa. And we're kind of going to be talking about you know sort of like some some of the finales that we've had recently with um, shows such as um, Arrow, The Flash, and um, Gotham, of course. So. Guys, uh, what what one should we go for first? Should we go for Arrow because I've seen that one? Yeah, let's do that one first. Yeah. 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 I um I don't I don't know. I mean, sort of like um I I I've sort of like had mixed feelings about this season. It's seemed very very uneven in comparison to the previous two series. Yeah, I'd agree. I didn't really like the finale that much. I think there was some good stuff in there, but the whole Raz Al Ghul thing didn't really, or Ra's Al Ghul thing didn't um, didn't get to the epic conclusion that it probably should have. You know, mm-hmm. it felt like they dispatched of him a bit too easily, for one thing. That was, that was strange for me because it, they spent all of this time setting up the rivalry between Ra's Al Ghul and Damien Dark. And I realized that characters like that are not going to stick around forever, but I figured given what the setup that they would keep Matt Nabel's Rachel Ghoul alive long enough to at least have one more meeting with Damien Dark before he was dispatched. Yeah, unless someone carts him off and shoves him in a Lazarus pit or something, but I can't see that happening. You know, no. You know, the whole thing is we didn't really see that much of Damien Dark, to be honest. It, you know, he's sort of like, um, it, was, it was referenced, but we didn't even get to meet him, really. You saw like was his so his yeah. yeah. Although, I have to say that that was a real waste of Christopher Heyerdahl. I mean, it was almost like he was doing a favor for a friend to play that that role because it seems like he is the one who should be playing Danny and Dark. Mm-hmm. I guess um, that was the bait and switch, though. They brought in an actor like that to make the audience think, "Oh yeah, this is about to be him." To make yes. it more surprising. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. yeah, but that whole scene in the episode was pretty pointless. It just felt like you know set up for the next season, which it was, but it you know, didn't feel like it was part of that same episode. And part of my problem with overall is the fact that so much of this arrow this season has felt like either set up for The Flash or set up for next season of Arrow or set up for Legends of Tomorrow. Um, yeah. 
they're 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 they're, they were using their flagship as a launching pad for everything else, and I think that was a massive part of the structural problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, though a big problem is they didn't have as engaging a villain as um, you know as Deathstroke last year. I mean, Rachel Ghoul had the potential to be um, you know a villain like that, but he did simply didn't have enough to do, and. The fact that he didn't get developed through flashbacks in the same way that Deathstroke did also didn't help. Mm. I, think no, I, no. I also think um, another thing was um, there was a lot of uh, people that were not really happy with the actor that they picked to play Ray Salgul. And, you know, I, I kind of... Uh, I, I don't know, I mean, I've, I've, not, I've not really seen him in, in much else, but I, I think that he did as much as he could do with what he was given, to be honest. You know, I think I it was really the, good. Yeah, I think he managed to. Uh, he managed to appear like someone that had been around for a while, someone who was more advanced beyond his years. You know, someone had this kind of innate wisdom about him. Just the fact that towards the end he was written as doing things because he was doing things didn't help at all. Mm-hmm. And that and that brings me to, up to another point, which is these writers that are collectively trying to maintain this connected universe with these soon-to-be three series putting aside the soap tropes and, and the, the stru- and the structure issues, which we've brought up, these people are not stupid. These people are comic book writers. They understand their source material. They've written the source material. They understand the, the concepts that they're playing with. And the, the chief comic book concept for, for our other season, apart from Ray Ghul, is the survive my sword prophecy. The, he who survives the sword of Ray Ghul becomes Ray Ghul. Now that's fine. If you're going to have prophecy in a genre show or a comic book show, that's absolutely fine. But one of two things has to happen. You have to explain this prophecy somehow. Prophecy either has to be literally true because it's a genre thing, and we, in, in that case, meet the precog who has had the prophecy, or the prophecy is not true, and they're playing with the fact that it's a genre concept, and it turns out that somebody planted the prophecy and is just using it to goose things along psychologically. The show did neither of those things. We, we neither got a precog who was literally a precog or any explanation of the, the prophecy as, you know, a previous race decided to just make it up from a whole cloth because he needed a uh, succession mechanism to weed out the wannabes. Neither explanation was ever put in. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't, and yet they didn't we were, go into as much detail as they should have. It all, again, Rachel Ghoul was just doing things because he wanted yeah. to do things. You know, there was but no it, real motivation. It, it brings me to setup because it leads me to think that perhaps because they're not stupid and they set up everything else, maybe what we're going to get is that the prophecy is one of the legend's setup elements. What we're going to find out is that, um, is that uh, Rip Hunter planted the prophecy through time travel for reasons TBD and that's how they're going to set that's how they're going to set him up on arrow having already set him up on the flash that that could actually be quite interesting because um in 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 legends of tomorrow the uh, the villain that they're going after is um oh god I can't remember Vandal Savage Vandal Savage, who, he's, he's stupid old. He's stupid yeah. old, yeah. He's, he's like he's like older than old. Yeah. Um, and you know, I I think Legends of Tomorrow is going to succeed and fail on what actor they get to yes. play Vandal Savage, and also how well they can write Vandal Savage. Because you know, there's two schools of thought on this. You know, he can either be written really, really well, like like he was in the uh, in in the park on Let's Luther. Uh, you know, thing for action comics, or it can really be written, you know, really, really atrociously. 
Mm. Um, I have a faith in them to do doing well enough, I think. You know, and, um, I mean, the, the, the preview for Legend of Tomorrow is certainly very promising, but it's very focused on that. Look at all these people teaming up, action concept, which is fine, you know, and I think mm-hmm. that the show will certainly succeed in that regard. Also, I don't think Captain Cold will will stick through it for the whole duration. Because um, let's let's just have a look at Captain Cold's character for, for a while. You know, in the um, in in the penultimate episode of uh, of Flash, you know, the first opportunity he had to betray them, he did. Yeah. And I think yeah. that that's might be, be be something that recurs in Legend of Tomorrow as well. Yeah. One Although thing that to establish is there needs to be something in it for him. Otherwise, he won't do it. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I happen to know that uh, from an from an article I've read that I'll I'll use in my next DC roundup when I have five is that um, Dominic Purcell and uh, Wentworth Miller will be appearing on all three shows next year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. it's it's kind of funny we're talking about Dominic Purcell and and uh, Wentworth Miller because I've just got my sister hooked on Prison Break. <laughs> <laughs> she, she's addicted to it, um, but. Um, move, move, moving um, before we move on from Arrow, um, I was also unhappy with how um, Felicity Smoke, the uh, resident bicycle, as uh, Reese Knight's car her, and um, Ollie Queen drove off into the sunset at the end of the at the end of the episode. I thought yeah, that was that kind bit, of that bit really annoyed me. I mean, I don't have an issue with Oliver Queen giving up his Arrow persona because he's lost it, you know the police really knowing who he is despite the technicality and you know and the fact that uh, Starling City is protected by other heroes I like the fact that he's humble enough to accept that other people can do this and he decides to leave but the fact that he just turns around to Felicity and says I can be with you now and she's just like okay it really destroys her character in ways that are just fairly irreparable in a lot of ways and the fact that Ray Palmer was in the room at the same time, it's just like, what are you doing? It's complete deconstruction of everything they've set up about these characters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it also kind of uh, pissed me off that, you know, Ray was so bleeding accepting of it, given that, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, he, he kind of, he was kind of like the um, the figging guy for riding the bicycle while Oliver was off <laughs> doing, 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 doing something else. Yeah, and I think yeah. if they wanted to get those characters together, then fine, but they should have done it in a way that wasn't so, I don't know, that wasn't so um, sexist, really, because the fact that, you know, everything we know about Felicity would suggest that Oliver just turning around and saying, I've decided that I'm going to be with you now, wouldn't be enough for her. Like, it would just be, she would be like, hang on, I'm not something to be picked up whenever you feel like it. Mm, yeah. But I think part of that is, um, and here's, I think, the distinction between the show producers and the network. This is the CW. Yeah. And I, I think the CW pretty much has mandated soap tropes for all their shows. Mm-hmm. And I think the producers have to figure out how to fit those soap tropes in, regardless of what their show is otherwise. And I think that this season is a prime example of how, what that looks like when it's not done as well as it could be. You know what I think yeah. they should do? I think they should just have a wench for the entire season and then just kill her off at the end of the season. <laughs> then they fulfill their soap tropes. And then they get another one for the next season. You know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Supernatural doesn't really do that. I mean, it's all about... There's only really four named characters in Supernatural at this point, but you never get a love triangle in that show. No, but what you do get are the the fringed loved ones who are killed to drive the heroes along. Yeah, and you also get the constant betrayal between the brothers, you know, lying to each other and so on, which gets annoying. Yeah, yeah. But this whole love triangle nonsense, I'm really sick of it. And I think the way they handled it in Arrow this season is quite insulting too. Yeah, it's awful. 
I also think you know that with supernatural, uh, supernatural is one hangover from 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 the days of WB. Because um, it was on the WB before it was on CW, and it only came on CW uh, once the uh, once the WB and UPN folded and became CW. Yeah, you know? I'm surprised they still haven't tried to shoehorn in a random female love interest into the show, you know, for for whatever reason. But they they just haven't. They just let the show continue as it did for 11 years, mm-hmm. you know, as of next year. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of, has it been renewed for an 11th year? Yeah. It's one of the longest running shows on television. It's probably probably (laughs) going to be the longest running American science fiction fantasy show, that's sure. I mean, it's beat Stargate now. Yeah. I I find that really funny because when Stargate went to 10 seasons, they're going on about it being the longest running sci-fi show in history. And and they sort of conveniently forgot about Doctor Who until somebody in Doctor Who fandom, you know, turned up and said something. (laughs) And Doctor Who sort of told it back. And then Smallville cleared 10 as well, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, Smallville should never have cleared five, to be honest. But <laughs> well, I liked Smallville, and I think it got better towards the end as well. So. Yeah, it had it had its moments. I kind of like the way they did the, uh, the they, they did the the Justice Society and and stuff like that. But yeah. um, the whole thing with Nan and Lang and and and, and um, all the soapy stuff just pissed me off. Oh yeah, that was. I mean, that was always nonsense. But again, the Lana character was, wasn't written particularly well. Mm. Or maybe she, she was written really well. She was just really annoying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but um, I think we've kind of done done Arrow to death now. Um, yeah, she, it's been beaten enough, I think. <laughs> Should we do Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. at some point? Uh, yeah, do you want to do Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. now? And um, Because I've not really... The last one I've seen was... Uh, oh, God, what was the last one I've seen now? Uh Sky's rejoined them, and um, you know the uh, Commander Adama guy. He wants to sort of like keep her prisoner because she's, you know, she's got powers and stuff like that. Yes. Um. So basically, I'm about four weeks behind, probably. Oh God! Do you want to? Do you want to take this one, Craig, to start? Well, um, yeah. I mean, a lot goes on. Uh, there was. Have you seen the episode where the original team all worked together to infiltrate that hydro base? Yeah, that's one when they blow it up at the end. Yeah, and you get to see that really cool uh, continuous shot of Sky taking down some hydro guys. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was a really good one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it builds it builds nicely from there. You know, it ends with a sort of uh, a war between the humans and Shield, but they do do really interestingly because it's all over a misunderstanding. And you've got kind of Coulson sitting on the edge think, thinking, hang on, this doesn't smell right. Because it's the way that um, Sky's mother betrays Adama. We'll just call him Adama, I can't remember. Mm. And then um, starts the war. But, you know, Coulson knows enough about people to think, nah, you wouldn't do that. It also kind of ended, you know, the the, the one where they infiltrated the shield ba- the, the Hydra base. It kind of ended... On, on, on the, um, oh, let's call the Avengers note. So that was almost like the tie-in episode to the Avengers Age of Ultron. Yeah, I thought it, that was okay, actually, because they gave him... It was just basically, here's some information, now go nuts. And, you know, in the Avengers movie, you don't need to know where they got the information from, so it works. Yeah, so that was a nice little tie-in uh, without it necessarily, you know, meaning too much to, to the television audience. It's all like it... It worked as a as a time for those like like ourselves that have, that have been to see Avengers: Age of Ultron, but who yeah. at this point hasn't seen Avengers: Age of Ultron? <laughs> That's a question. <laughs> well, the next um, the next episode you haven't seen yet. The tie-in is a bit more 
ham-fisted. Mm-hmm. It's, um, you know, the whole oh, rice. Have you seen the film yet? Yes, I have. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, you know the Deus Ex helicarrier that shows up? Yes. I know that works mm-hmm. in the film. It just turns out that's what that, that data protocol was. Them restoring that helicarrier, and was, when they revealed that, I was like, "That's really boring." Yeah. <laughs> what What did you think of the uh, the resolution of Agent Ward's storyline? Because that kind of resolved in in that last episode as well, didn't it? He kind of went off to do his own thing. Well, he comes back. So, uh, Is he? Yeah. I like the idea that um, when he's working with the Shield team, he's he's using them, and they all know that he's using them, and they're using him. It's kind of a mutual. Uh, mutual needs sort of thing, which is good, you know, because I don't really want Ward back on the team. And what happens to him at the end of the season should, you know, should be really interesting next season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think Ward works better on the outskirts, like you say. Because he can be brought in as and when he's needed, and he can do his own thing, which makes him more interesting. Because I, I, I felt when he was on the team, he was kind of boring. Yes. I will say that when you, when you get to the two-hour finale, you're going to be absolutely blown away by the performance-level stuff. Um, Kyle McLaughlin, Deshaun Bachman, and Chloe Bennett absolutely bring it as this supremely mm. screwed-up, dysfunctional family unit. You buy it. So it's going to be kind of like the uh, Partridge family gone wrong. Oh, very wrong. <laughs> and and it, tragically wrong. And part of the tragedy is the inexorability of it, because Xi Yang, her mother, is a, a, an absolute case study, a cause-effect case study in what happens when, a, when an immortal is vivisected. Yeah. It's like, she wasn't going to come out of that okay. She just wasn't. It was simply a question of the degree of damage. And the degree of damage is freaking extreme. Yeah. It's bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't think that from an acting point of view, she didn't, she came across as any more kind of, I don't know, she, she didn't come across as any more villainous when she revealed herself. I think that, you know, in the same way that Kyle McLaughlin um, dials it up to 11 when he's doing his proper hide thing, I think she should have been noticeably different. You know, But I did like the whole, um, the fact that she had to lie to her people to get them to listen to her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember her being on Neighbours. Yeah. You know, I, I remember seeing her on Neighbours. Uh, I think she was, um, you know, you know when the Kennedys adopted that that that, that yeah, young boy. She's, uh, she's, she's their sister. She was kind of like their older sister, wasn't she? Yeah. Who was a bit of a rebel and you know, sort of like uh, and, and stuff like that. And uh, and then sort of like less than six months after she'd been on that, she was working in America. She turned up in 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 a um, doll's house. Yeah, she was in the hundred as well. In the first yeah, season. yeah, and and the second season, she was killed off um, early nice. in the second season, well, yeah. wasn't she? Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, she she's pretty good. She's pretty good at playing those sort of like uh, screwed up roles. She was a good addition to the cast again, the same way that Matt Nabel and Arrow comes across as someone who's older than he looks. She definitely manages to pull that off. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so like um, I've kind of kind of been enjoying Shield more this season. Um, it's had a lot more. Um, to it, but the, it still had it still had sort of like uh, some 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 low points. I think to be honest, yeah, it's kind of coming out of its low quality you know, from last well, from season mm-hmm. one. And I think that the fact that it's embracing its comic book roots more and more is um, is only a good thing. I mean, the fact that they are introducing and setting up the Inhumans is is great, and that's only going to get better next season, especially mm-hmm. with. Them. You know, especially with Sky going to be leading a team of secret warriors, uh, as the comic was called, which I think is pretty much how they're going to go. Cool. Um, so, um, what what should we go on to now? Uh, should we go on to Gotham, considering that the the finale is airing at the moment here in the UK? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to let you guys discuss that. I don't watch that one. Yeah. 
And um, I actually liked the finale. I thought it was really, really silly, but I think that's a good look for Gotham. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, you know, when it tries to take things seriously, it fails miserably. So, you know, when it just goes over the top, it's it's actually really entertaining. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard that um, Jada Pinkett Smith will not be returning next year, so either she dies in the episode or she doesn't, but she's going to come back with a facelift, different actress. Well, it seems like she died, so they can leave the door open for a return if, she, mm-hmm. you know, they want her to. But the fact that she was basically on a different show for the past four or five episodes is ridiculous. You know, she's mm-hmm. off on that island that has nothing to do with anything else. Yeah, and that 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 islands that whole island story storyline it's sort of like um, I don't know done about you, but it seems to sort of like destroy the, uh, the 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 flow of the continuity on the series. Yeah, it's because it wasn't tying into anything. Mm-hmm. She was just there being you know being treated weirdly by Dollmaker, and that was it. She didn't really mm-hmm. it didn't really have anything to do with anything. It's almost like she's got a twenty two episode contract and they have to shove her in twenty two episodes, but they don't know what to do with her after she's out of the gangland stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, I kind of, um, I, I kind, of, I've kind of had mis- mixed feelings about her character. I felt that, um, you know, when she was a nightclub owner and stuff like that, she was just way, way too over the top. Yeah, it's almost like she's the only one that realizes what kind of show Gotham is. You know, everyone else is deadly serious, but she's just hamming it up. Same with the Penguin, really. Mm-hmm. They're both, you know, they're both kind of just having a good time with it, which again, I think is a good direction for Gotham to go. Yeah, but the. It's funny because a few weeks ago, or even a week before the finale aired, I was joking that about the finale, Bruce Wayne will find the Batcave. And guess what? He's found the Batcave. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That, that, I, was, yeah. I was kidding. So he's going to be Batman by the end of next season or something. I think. What, Batboy? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Alfred be Batman. He'll be, he'll be Robin, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, you know, obviously they're trying to shoehorn as much Batman references as they can in mm. every episode. And next season you're going to get like the Mad Hat or Mr. Freeze and and all these others, and it's just, okay, what is there left for Batman to do when he appears? Well, Alfred will probably be, be, be Batman, um, the OAP Batman, and say, um, I'm just going to knock these people around with my uh, with my, my father's sonic screwdriver. <laughs> you know, sort of like, he'll, he'll sort of like get a Doctor Who reference in there. That's what they'll do. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, Batman will show up in costume, and Jim Gordon will be like, yeah, all the villains are locked up, it's fine, go away. That works. <laughs> <laughs> Um, do you do you think do you think um, do you think Gotham's got the potential to last another season? No, it's been picked up for a second season, but do you think it'll 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 last the course of time? Go go for a third, or do you think it could potentially end up being cancelled if it don't pick up its game? It's hard to say because when it comes to Batman, people seem to give it a free pass, so it's kind of getting well watched, even though it's kind of critically maligned in a lot of ways. So. I think it might just survive on the fact that people are still watching it, but even though a lot of people that watch it don't really like it. I've kind of lost patience with it myself, but um, I'm handing it over to another writer for next season. I might still watch it, but I can't be bothered writing about it anymore. Yeah, well, I, I couldn't be bothered writing about it from the start. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that's just me um, I, I tend to um, when I'm writing reviews I tend to favour the British stuff um, because obviously um, someone has to <laughs> and I don't, I don't think it's written about by many 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 websites yeah. I, I guess it's something really really big like Merlin was and and Doctor Who, obviously. Mm. Um, so I, I tend to focus on, on, on the UK stuff and let other people focus on the uh, on the American stuff but, you know, moving on from Gotham, I think we've kind of uh, beat that horse to death now. Um, the Flash. Now, I, I've not seen the finale yet. I've seen the penultimate one, and I'm really impressed with the penultimate. 
Um, but there's something from the finale that I've seen that's got me really, really, really excited. And that's the fact that we've got the uh, Golden Age. We, we've got a hint that the Golden Age Flash is going to come into the uh, third into the second series. Yeah, yeah they're, they're, doing, they're doing multiple universes tomorrow, um, yeah. next year. I think there was a story in the comic where Jay Garrick, the, you know, the Golden Age Flash, was trapped in the Speed Force mm-hmm. and couldn't get out. So maybe the helmet coming through the wormhole signifies that he's stuck in there and he's about to get out. Yeah, I'll I, I tell you what though, I'm still disappointed that the, um, the actor that plays uh, Barry Allen's father in Flash, I can't remember his name, uh, but he, he played he played the Flash in the nineties. I'm kind of disappointed that John Wesley Ship uh, didn't get to play John, didn't get to play Wade Garrett because mm. he, he's, he's he's certainly old enough now to do it, and you know, and I think he might have been potentially pretty good at that. There's the mm. suggestion that the nineties Flash series could end up being one of the multiverses they visit, which would be quite cool. Mm. It, it would be. It'd be, it'd be, it'd be fun to like somehow tie it in. Um, yeah. Because although the nineties Flash wasn't particularly the you know the most well crafted superhero series at the time, it's probably one of the only ones that we actually had back in the nineties. Um, and there were certainly worse shows that came came and went, such as uh, the Glennie Arson one, Nightman. Do you remember that? Mm, God, that was bad. Mm. The, the only thing that kept me watching that was the fact that we had uh, Patrick McNee in it in a small role. Sure. Um, but it was was really really bad. It was actually, if you think the Flash was bad back in the nineties, which Raisa does, um, Nightman was probably much much worse. <laughs> but you know, I, I've I've enjoyed the Flash this year, and um, I'm kind of looking forward to seeing where they go with next year. Um, I, I enjoyed the fact that we got the Trickster. Yeah, there's been lots of great stuff in, in season one. You know. Mm-hmm. Looking back on it, considering what they threw into one season, it feels like, you know, if the show had been made five years ago, even, it'd be like three seasons worth of content in one season, which has been not really much in the way of time wasted, which is great. That's exactly right, because I almost said season two <laughs> before when, when, <laughs> was, when, when we start, first started talking about it. Uh, yeah. It just seems like it, it seems like there's been more than one series of it, you know, because Definitely. so much has been in there, like you say. Um, I mean, I've just found it totally interesting. I thought, I thought the uh, reverse Flash storyline was really, really well thought out, and um, the, I felt the actor that was playing Wells, he, he just knocked it out of the park. Yeah, Tom Carroll's yes. great. You know, mm. there's so much, so much subtext to every line that he had in the show. It's just, you know, he was an absolute godsend for the show. I yeah. wonder, him, I wonder how they're bringing him back next season. That'll be an interesting. I hope they'll have to. They say they're going to. He's still, he's still going to be a regular. So I hope they do yeah. because Tom Cavanaugh is like one of those rare actors that you know he can actually say absolutely nothing and with just just a facial expression expression he can say a thousand and one things. Yeah, you know, just, I'm wondering if they'll have him in as the real Harrison Wells next season, which might not work as well because. Obviously, part of the thing about his character has been the uh, secrets he's been keeping. So, if he's suddenly this straight-up guy that's not keeping any secrets, what is there? You know, what interesting stuff is there for him? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I like the way they've got Amanda Pays in there. You know, because you've got you got you got two old uh, old Flash characters from Flash actors from the origin from the nineties one, Amanda Pays and um, who's playing John Wesley Ship. Yeah, yeah, but Amanda Pays is playing essentially the same role, really. Yeah, same same person, same character. Um, whereas John Wesley Ship's playing, playing a different character. 
But damn, you know, it's all like it just song like it kind of blew me away when I seen Amanda Pays in it, you know. So I just made me realize how much time's gone by since that original series, you know, since that 90s series, because she, she's so like, um, you know, she certain looks, no, not not different, <laughs> that's for sure. Mm. And, and and that's me trying to be polite. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the, uh, yeah, the finale was, was really great. I mean, uh, I pointed out in my review as well, mostly, you know, a superhero show, you can bet your bottom dollar the finale will be about this epic confrontation between the hero and whatever villain they've got this season. I mean, that's what all three seasons of Arrow have essentially been. But this one it was much more introspective. It was much more let the characters carry it. You know, and obviously the characters that built up were so great that they could easily carry the show in ways that made it interesting, even though there wasn't a lot of action in there until the last 10 minutes or so. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I you know, I, I read read an article last week and it pretty much said that um, The Flash has just shown all the rest of the t- superhero shows what, how to do a finale, yeah. how to do season it's finale. Fine. And to be honest, I think most people... That that I that I've seen write about it online pro- probably would have would have been quite happy for that to be in a series finale. Yeah, I mean it could have been, I suppose, but the, you know I don't want the Flash show to end, so at least not yet. So I think it's um, I think I'm happy with it being the end of season one. But, mm-hmm. And it also leaves things open nicely. I mean you've got the whole um, the whole Flashpoint thing that they appear to have been setting up that they didn't mm-hmm. actually do, and I like to swerve away from that. But I also feel like. If the future Barry uh, knew to warn off the present Barry to against saving his mother, I wonder if he experienced the flashpoint timeline. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and, and the other thing on the Flash is they've got there's so much science and so much stuff for that left for them to cover, um, such as you know the Speed Force. We've seen hints of it, but we've not actually seen it fully played out. Yet. Yeah, and they also need to explain how paradoxes work in their universe because they've mm-hmm. done that yet. But I think. You know, since we left in the middle of the story, I think it'll be it'll be fine. I think they'll explain it next season. Mm-hmm. Although I think logically, and I've seen this written about in other reviews of the finale, part of the paradox is what happens with with the um, with with uh, Eddie and Eobard, and that's what opens up the wormhole again. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how the whole first season of The Flash and consequently three seasons of Arrow have been an alternate timeline caused by you know Eobard Thorne's time travel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so basically we could we could see the Arrow being rebooted next year and starting all over again. No, I hope no, I hope we stick with the timeline we've got because <laughs> otherwise you get fringe season four, you know, where yeah. you reboot it completely, which is mm-hmm. useless because I don't want to follow other characters that I've not been watching. Yeah, I always did think Fringe was kind of like a TV show for the Foggy Challenge, but there you go. <laughs> um, so, should we move off Flash now? Because we've had a, we've we've had the uh, six-minute trailer for Supergirl, and the uh, pilot episode has apparently been leaked. So oh, I haven't watched it. I'm, I'm going to watch it when it airs. It's not important enough to me to actually watch it early. Have you seen the, at the time of writing your art, the article I wrote for you, Ian, that will go up this week? Um, I hadn't watched the Supergirl pilot, but I'm mm-hmm. not going to talk about it much at this point. So um, the trailer itself was... I had mixed reaction to it. I, 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 um, I've got to admit, I turned it off about... A minute and a half in, <laughs> I, I just thought this is just total shit. I'm not watching this, and just this, I didn't watch the full trailer. I just yeah, I just couldn't stand to. It just didn't, you know. I thought I think it was edited in a certain way that made it appeal to a certain audience. Yeah, and maybe that audience wasn't me. Twelve year old girls. Yeah, but then 
the superhero stuff was great. You know, the the plane crash depicted in the trailer was was amazing. Mm-hmm. Great. And I think that I think it's got potential, and I do trust the you know Greg Berlanti and the other guy, I forget his name. I do trust them to deliver something good because you know they gave us the Flash and Arrow. So, you know, they, they get a free pass at least a little bit in that respect. Mm-hmm. Well, I've I've um I've not seen the pilot yet. I know that you have, um, but we'll not talk about it. Um, no. Yeah, because um, obviously, uh, Raisa needs. You know, Raisa is going to want to be in that conversation. I think, and you know. Yeah, and I've I've purposely decided not to watch it because um, I I want to be able to just deal with it in context. Yeah, I made the decision once I found out it was the final cut. You know, full special effects and everything. Because I believe when the Flash was leaked last year and Constantine as well. They weren't the finished product. Mm. I didn't actually. I didn't actually watch them. Uh, I think the only one I did watch was the Flash. Except... I didn't watch them because I heard they weren't the finished product, so I didn't want to sit there and watch half finished special effects. Yeah, the the only one I watched was the Flash, and um, I think uh, I think it was me that saw. Like, I think I passed it to you, didn't I, Risa? Yes, and I and I watched it. It was the complete version, as far as I can tell. Mm. They added three minutes when it aired. I think I don't know what three minutes they added, but I can't remember. It's probably a reference to the bicycle. <laughs> um, you know, um, the, the only the only element I've not been too you know keep cool on in regards to the Flash is, is the whole sort of like soapy stuff they've been doing with Iris. But other than yeah, that, it's been okay. I've just got to the point where I severely dislike that character because she's just such a little princess. You know, although she was better by the finale. Yeah, she found out the secret and stuff. It was fine, but. You know, even then she was a bit kind of me, me, me. You know, she didn't really realise that other people are involved and other people's lives are at risk and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, we, we've hit on Supergirl. We've we kind of gone back to the Flash, so I think that's probably a great segue to go on to Legends of Tomorrow. What are, you, what are your first impressions? Looks great. I'm psyched. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I, I just love the fact that they're going to be using, that they're going after Vandal Savage. Um, it's everything I wanted from a trailer, like for that kind of show. Mm, absolutely, it, it's all like uh, it's got it's got me really really excited, but I'm 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 kind of like a little bit cautious because um, I think a lot of it is going to swing on how they write Vandal Savage and who they cast as Vandal Savage, and I think the. I think the casting for Vandal Savage is is so 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 much more important. Than, than the casting for Rachel Ghoul. So yeah, there's, also the, uh, there's also the added problem of will bringing Sarah back undermine everything that went on because of her death. You know, I mean, she's been well, pronounced dead twice and she's still back. Look, according to what I've read and, and some of what I've included in my DC roundups, when she comes back, she won't. Her family won't know right away. No, and that. <laughs> Yeah, and one of the things she's going to be wrestling with in Legends of Tomorrow is when and how she tells them. Mm-hmm. Interesting. What I what I find interesting is that if you look at the characters in Legends of Tomorrow, you have you have Rip Hunter, who's basically using a pseudonym as X Directory because he can't be you know publicly known because then rogue time travel would be trying to constantly eliminate him. You've got the resurrected through the Lazarus Pit, Sarah, who's been dead and brought back. You've got um, Captain Cold, who's had his identity erased, thanks to the Flash. And you've had um, Hawk Girl, who's got the dies and reincarnates mechanism associated with Hawk Girl. The, the key factor is types of death 
and 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 types of 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 rebirth and how those affect identity. Those are the common themes with these characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you've got Ray Palmer, um, who is perceived as dead. Yeah, yeah. The mm-hmm. explosion in the Arrow finale. Yes. Obviously, that's how he shrinks. Yeah. Yeah. So for the, there's a period of time where they think he's dead, don't realize he shrunk. That's why they have in the trailer, you know, you weren't dead, you just shrank. He says, yep. So he's actually perceived as dead. So, you know, so it, it all fits. You're basically talking about a group of people who are not officially alive in the strictest sense of the word. Um, which leads me to wonder about what's going to be going on with Firestorm. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I haven't seen Robbie Amell's name anywhere in the casting, but obviously the trailers show him in full Firestorm get up. I wonder if he, that's just a visual effect for the stuntman. Yeah, yeah, because mm-hmm. Garber's the only one who's officially attached. And point, I mean, they might just announce that he's in it anyway, who knows? Yeah, but why put it off? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe the savings, maybe the saving something, holding something back for Comic Con or something. Because I should yeah. imagine, I should imagine this show, you know, this Supergirl and all the other ones, they're going to have a huge presence at Comic Con. Yeah, it's I'm gonna... wondering if, because um, I read that they're not planning to put Supergirl in the same universe just yet, but they're going to have to do some serious groundwork to establish them in the same universe. I mean, nobody's ever mentioned a flying alien in Arrow, as far as I can remember. You know, and mm-hmm. obviously in the Supergirl trailer, Superman's been active for quite a while. Absolutely. I mean, I actually, I actually read a rumor a while back, and I think this is a rumor that's been coming and going quite a lot uh, throughout this past year. And it is that you know Tom Welling's going to come back as a as Superman. You know, I think that was something that someone speculated that caught um, on as an actual rumor. I mean, everybody would love it, but like, who knows? I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of like indifferent on it because I I, I didn't really take Tom Wang, and he's got about as much charisma as Tree Bark. I mean, yeah, I always I always liked him. I would love to see him play mm. Superman, but he was always very vocal about the fact that he didn't want to wear any costumes or you know didn't want to actually appear as Superman in the show because he didn't want to be typecast or something. Playing a character for ten years, that you run that risk anyway. Yeah, well, you know, I think I think he's gone more in produ- more into producing now anyway. So. Yeah, he's went pretty quiet. But I think that um, having him on as Superman would fit the look of those of the shows at the moment. And I think um, I think Melissa Benos, I think pronounce it, she would fit or she would fit in really well with. Grant Gustin and so on, you know, and crossovers. So I think that mm-hmm. I think it'll be a wasted opportunity if they don't cross these shows over. Indeed, it would be, and and the fact of the matter is, the CW pretty much has most of them. So I don't see yeah. any reason why they shouldn't do it. You know, yeah. Um, there's been rumours of Constantine turning up in Arrow next season as well. Well, I think that'd be good because I'd like to see Constantine again, given that the show's been cancelled. Yeah, really... but again, you've got the problem of why haven't the uh, Arrow characters being aware of this demonic apocalypse that's apparently going on all around them. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just, uh, you know, it, it can, kind of sucks that that show's been cancelled because I, um, I, that show got really, really good. Yeah, um, yeah, it was, it was certainly getting there, and I think the fact that they axed it is a big mistake, but uh, apparently it's been shopped around anyway, so there's other people looking at it. Yeah, well, let's hope. All hope is not lost. <laughs> let's hope it gets picked up. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of hoping Amazon picks it up. You know, they've like, been hearing like, it, or they've been. Yeah, they've been airing it over here already, so why not Why not Amazon pick it up, or even Netflix, for that matter? Yeah, or CW, I mean, mm, CW might get it. I, don't, I can't see CW doing it, doing a good job of it, to be honest. They'll, they'll, they'll have too many bloody soapy elements in it, and that, that's probably one of the best things about Constantine, is you don't have any of this soapy shit in it. Well, so if they handle it in the same way they've been handling Supernatural, mm, they're not good. Possibly. Because thematically they're very similar. 
So I think that if they took Constantine and ran it in the same way, it would, mm. it would work. They could actually potentially cross them over. Yeah, I don't know about that. Mm. Yeah. I'd rather I'd rather he showed up in Arrow because he's a DC character. True. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so does that about wrap it up for this week, do you think? Our finale special? Yeah, I can't think of any other finale. I, I can't think of anything else now. Um, so I guess now it's time for our uh, interview with um, Ari Novak, the uh, producer and director of Cowboys vs. Dinosaurs. <laughs> I can't wait to see this film. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it, I, I was just looking at the trailer the other day and it looks cool. It looks really, really funny. You know, and, and just the very idea of a bunch of cowboys walking around with RPGs blowing up dinosaurs. I mean, come on. <laughs> and at least 30 seconds of it will be awesome then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every time a dinosaur blows up. Um, but it's yeah. like, it's, um, I've, you know, from from talking to the guy, I don't get the impression that is, uh, that, 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 that is sort of like um, producing an Oscar. <laughs> Potential movie, he's sort of like um, he, see, he seems to have a great sense of humour and he's you know very tongue and cheek. So you know, so here's Ari Nova. They thought they were mining for precious metal. The reason why we've chosen this site is the geological formation is without precedent. Fire in the hole. Hold on. But what they unearthed. Go, go, go. Is pure terror. 65 million years in the making. Oh, God, no. You gotta get me out of here, right? I can help. The last thing I need is a hothead running around town. Come on, Hannah, let him help you. Now, a town's lone shot at survival rests in the hands. I need a drink. Come on, let's go. What are those things? What are, what's happening? Of a few cowboys. You know how to use one of these things? And if they're going to outlive these prehistoric outlaws... Where the hell are you going? Hunting. They'll have to shoot first. Or become extinct in the wildest action-adventure standoff. Do you honestly think that you're just going to cowboy up and ride into town guns a-blazing? Where only the best species wins. Your history. Cowboys versus Dinosaurs. I'd like to uh, welcome um, director and producer um, Ari Novak to the show this week, and he's going to be talking to us about um, a new film he's been involved with called Cowboys vs. Dinosaurs. So, Ari, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me today. How are you? Uh, I'm great. It's you know, it's fan- fantastic having you on the show. I'm quite looking forward to this um, because I've, you know, I've, I've been reading up about you. I've, I've um, I've read up on a few of the things that you've done, so it'd be, you know, just be great to sort of have a chat about those. Um, but I guess the first question is, um, how did you get involved in television? Was it something you, you always had an interest in? You know, getting involved in television and movies, uh, yeah, it was something I was always into. I guess I got my first job in the film industry when I was like 16. Uh, I got a job over at Universal Studios uh, in Orlando, actually, working on the back lots. And I really fell in love with it. Um, it was something I just really enjoyed doing. It was, you know, almost like that moment on Almost Famous where, you know, you sort of sat there and seen this world and then you got to go behind the scenes and love it even more. And that's really what it was for me. And I've been working in it ever since. 
Cool. Well, I've noticed you've actually you've actually done quite a bit. I mean, wh- one thing I noticed you was involved in was the uh, AOL sessions. Um, were those were those like a, a bit like MTV Unplugged, where the artists gave live music performances, or were they more of a Q and A sort of thing? Uh, those were like live performances. It was a format to give artists uh, kind of a different platform to be more intimate, uh, bring them into the studio, and create a more of a, you know, intimate session for the fans and the artists to uh, connect to their music together. So uh, it was a cool format. And I've been involved in music in, you know, a lot of different areas. Uh, You know, music is always a huge part of my life. So I've been involved in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and designing projects for Led Zeppelin, uh, some things like that. So uh, I've been really lucky to have kind of a diverse career. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome stuff. I mean, I'm actually a guitarist myself, so I kind of like my music. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's probably a lot of people you've met and worked with that that have been sort of like a lifelong inspiration to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the great thrills of my life was working for Neil Preston, who was the you know, Led Zeppelin tour photographer and working on a project for Led Zeppelin with him, uh, you know, where I got to go and see all the photographs from behind the scenes of the Led Zeppelin tours ranging all the way from the 60s all the way to the end of the band's, uh, you know, sort of era. And uh, that was just so cool, listening to bootlegs and, you know, taking a look at the photographs and seeing what it was like to be on tour with Zeppelin uh, and then make this project with, uh, you know, their tour photographer, Neil, uh, who's a genius in his own right. Uh, it was very cool. Yeah, cool. Um, you know, stepping stepping aside from the music a little bit, because we might get back to that in a bit, um, is you, you've also, you also worked as a producer on a series called Sensing Murder. Um, I'm not sure we've actually had that show come here in the UK yet, but would you mind talking a little bit about that and, uh, you know, what, what, what role, role you played in producing it? Sure. Yeah, I was uh, involved in uh, Sensing Murder. I was kind of a, a packaging agent, uh, which is how I ended up as a, a producer on that project. But Sensing Murder was basically working with some psychics and mediums, uh, one in particular who was uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Pam Coronado, and really incredible person who could, um, you know, had these psychic abilities that assisted police officers in their investigations in many successful cases. And it was a show on discovery. And at the time I was working as an agent. So um, my background was representing directors of photography and things of that nature. And on that particular show, I uh, packaged quite a bit of the crew that uh, worked on it and uh, helped with the deal with the production company and Discovery Channel. So it's probably it's probably the uh, the real life equivalent as to what that uh, show Medium was based on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you ever uh, get a chance to uh, Google Pam Coronado, uh, she's got some incredible stories, uh, and she's this you know person who literally you know, could take an object and sense uh, its energy, and she assisted police officers, you know, and it sounded crazy, like kind of mumbo-jumbo to me, and uh, and then you watch her do her work, and you see how she actually assists law enforcement, and uh, it was kind of inspirational, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, your latest project, is, which is what we're kind of on here to talk about, is uh, Cowboys versus Dinosaurs, uh, which um, I'm guessing is a what is 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 a Western monster movie mashup. Um, it also, from what I can tell, it's your second movie working with CGI dinosaurs. Um, how did you become involved with it? 
good question. Uh, I was actually flying home from Belize while working on uh, a project called Rise of the Dinosaurs slash Jurassic Attack. And we just filmed this movie, Belize, and it was a lot of fun. But, you know, shooting Belize is kind of an interesting place because, you know, it's very production friendly in ways, but in others it's not. It kind of felt like the jungle was trying to kill us and the people were trying to kill us and it was hot. And it was kind of a pain in the butt in a lot of respects, at least from my perspective of producing that film down there. And I just spent the winter uh, climbing mountains in Montana. And I was sitting next to my visual effects supervisor. I said, God, you know... For all the pain that it was shooting this movie down in Belize and in the jungle, uh, it would be so much fun to bring a movie to Montana. And he sort of, you know, started vibing on what I was talking about, and it just hit me like a bolt of lightning. I was like, God, you know, if we could get cowboys fighting dinosaurs, that would be a movie I'd want to watch. You know, I think Americans, they love killing animals. They'll never admit it, but they love killing animals. And, you know, they love killing big animals. They love posing with these big, you know, animals that are dead. And I was thinking, well, God, the biggest animal is a dinosaur. And, like, the biggest gun would be, like, a, you know, an RPG. What if we get, you know, cowboys, modern-day cowboys who are armed through the teeth, blowing away, you know, raptors and T-Rex with RPGs and AK-47s. <laughs> and, you know, by the time the plane landed, uh, we had half the movie mapped out. So... It was uh, it was kind of go from there. And then the big thing, you know, is we brought it to Anthony Fankhazer, a producer and writer, and he loved the idea as well. Um, and that really, you know, kind of got us going uh, full steam ahead. Yeah, it looks, you know, from what I've seen in the trailer, it looks like a hang of a lot of fun. Um, you know, sort of very much in the same vein as the uh, as the sci-fi B-movies B that they've had on, such as Sharktopus and, uh, and, and Sharknado and stuff like that. You know, which which are always a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm a huge fan of B-movies and of sci-fi movies. And I also love, you know, bigger budget sci-fi movies, especially like the work of Jim Cameron, um, people like that. So, you know, with Cowboys vs. Dinosaurs, we wanted to make the craziest possible movie. We wanted to give people this experience. But we also kind of wanted to shoot a little bit bigger than some of our past uh, science fiction movies that we'd produced. Um, so we spent a lot of time developing the characters. And, you know, the dinosaurs in this film are kind of a metaphor for our main character. You know, he comes to the town and he's wronged this person and this woman uh, that he loved. And he's come back to this town. And in a way, he has to face his demons uh, literally and metaphorically by facing off with these uh, dinosaurs. And it became a much sort of a deeper connection the actors had to the subject matter. It wasn't just blowing away a dinosaur. It was trying to, you know, face his inner demons. And uh, as he gets more uh, sort of peace with uh, his actions in his past, he becomes more successful killing these dinosaurs and eventually, hopefully, prevails. Um, so... It's uh, it was a cool project to work on and develop and make. You, you say you've, you, you've, you know, like, like myself, you've grown up with a lot of these, lot of these movies. I mean, um, I remember, you know, as 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 a kid, um, certainly as a young teenager, um, you know, we quite often go out on a Friday night every now and again to, uh, you know, every now and again to, to be with relatives, and we'd usually get back at about sort of like eleven. In the evening, we find a monster movie on, or, or an old Hammer Dracula film, on and stuff like that. Um, I'm just wondering, were there any movies that you know, you know, old sci-fi movies from when when you was a kid that have been particularly that have been a particular inspiration to you, or that you just liked? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. I remember I had a really uh, powerful experience. I, uh, my friend was a projectionist at a movie theater and they used to get the movies on like, you know, Wednesday afternoon and he would screen them on Thursday for himself and then they would play on Friday. And I got a call from him and it was like Thursday night and he was like, dude, you got to get down here. You got to see this movie. And I was like, what? what? He's like, it's the craziest, coolest thing ever. And we went down and we had our own private screening uh, with him of Starship Troopers. And to me, Starship Troopers like really captured like it was crazy and fun and action packed. And it had like the hot girls and a cool storyline And it kind of really knew itself and knew it just wanted to give you a great, fun experience. And I thought to myself, God, it would be really cool to give other people that experience through my art. And uh, I always think of Starship Troopers when I walk into a sci-fi project and remember that experience that I had with it. And, you know, oftentimes I would try to give that to the audience, um, you know, that special connection. And, of course, what 14-year-old boy can ever forget the uh, Denise Richards shower scene? Ah, it's the best, right? I mean, <laughs> Absolutely. Like, you know, they're hanging out, they're showering. Two minutes later, they're blowing apart huge bugs with, like, an Uzi. I mean, it was the greatest film ever, mm-hmm. uh, you know. I, I still hold true to that. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that first movie. I've not seen the sequels up. I, you know, I have to admit, I haven't either. I kind of don't want to tarnish. Uh, even though I have some good friends who've worked on the sequels, uh, to me, it's such a you know, it's a, it's the sacred place where I hold uh, Starship Troopers in my mind's eye. So I wouldn't want it, uh, you know, rained on by a, a cheesy sequel. And plus, <laughs> the, the sequels don't have Michael Ironside in. So, <laughs> what, what, yeah, right. They kind of made the movie. You know, what what sci-fi film or, or, or miniseries is complete without Michael Ironside? I mean, come on. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I agree. He's a genius. You know, I, I remember I remember him in V, the the, uh, the the 1980s V miniseries, the the final battle. And that, that was the first time I seen him. And, um, you know, he, he's just been great in that. But your, your film has another pretty iconic actor. You've got Eric Roberts. Yeah, Eric was a treat to work with. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so, um, what, 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 what would you say was the most challenging thing of of directing this film for you, um, other than the uh, the location? Um, you know, I, honestly, the location was great to work in. Montana was a, a pleasure to shoot the movie in. Uh, they have one of the best film commissions I think I've ever worked with. So, filming the movie in that respect, location wise, wasn't hard. But we filmed this movie in about twelve days. And if you're familiar with how normal movies would be made, we probably have twice as much time because Cowboys vs. Dinosaurs has over 250 visual effect shots in it. And it's got obviously a ton of story and different characters and locations and moving parts such as ATVs and explosions and horses. So to shoot all that material in 12 days was insane. I mean, I literally was up probably for all 12 days. And it wasn't necessarily because we were filming that long, but by the time you call rap and you get back to your place and you're making plans for the next day and adjusting to weather and changes or someone's sick, etc., um, it really, you know, uh, I've climbed many mountains, but I have to say the physically most grueling thing I've ever done was shooting cowboys versus dinosaurs. Damn. Do you have any uh, funny stories from the set you could share? Yeah, I got a, a pretty crazy story. Um, so Rip Hillis, who plays Val Walker, our lead cowboy, 
was actually originally not cast as Val Walker. We had cast another actor as Val, and we started filming. And we were on day two, and we were in this uh, bar scene. And the scene was supposed to be where this cowboy busts through the door, and he starts blowing away these dinosaurs. And we'd rehearsed it, and everything was set up, and we call action. And he comes in, and, you know, it wasn't quite right, so we make some adjustments. And, you know, the energy wasn't quite there. And, you know, I had a little chat with him, and everything seemed cool. And we'd go for a second take, and he busts through the door. I'm like, wow, lots more action. And right in the middle of his line, he falls face first. And we're like, cut, what happened? I'm like, we look up, and he's having convulsions. Well, the, the guy was, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say he OD'd, but I don't also want to lie. He was like, you know, uh, a not well individual, let's say. And uh, he uh, was in convulsions on the floor because uh, maybe he had uh, enjoyed a few too many uh, treats that day or the night before, and we couldn't keep filming. Um, so there I am. I'm like, I don't know what to do. We've just, we're two days into the movie. So we kind of adapt the scene and, you know, we make sure he's okay. And thank God he was fine. We got him his medical attention. We finish up the day and we take a meeting. We're like, listen, there's no way we can continue the movie with this particular actor. And they give me, Anthony Fankhouse, the producer, gives me three pictures. And he's like, pick one of these faces because the next flight to Montana leaves in like an hour and a half. And these three guys are standing by, pick one of them. And he's like, I back them all. And I look at these three faces, and I end up picking Rib Hillis, and he's the man. I mean, he's the best as this character. I've actually done another movie with him since Cowboys vs. Dinosaurs, and he's such a cool guy, such a great actor, and he and I have such a brotherhood. Um, so it was meant to be, but I would say that was the craziest thing. And then we ended up having like only 10 and a half days left to film the movie. We had a redo day one and a lot of day two. Um, so we had a break into two units, uh, where I was directing the unit and then Anthony, our producer was directing the unit, but, uh, we got it done. It was crazy, but, uh, we got it done. Cool. Um, I mean, that, that sounds pretty, pretty bad. I mean, I, I'm epileptic myself, so, um, I've never actually seen myself have a seizure, but <laughs> I, I know yeah, how I feel afterwards. Scared. I mean, yeah, we were really worried for the guy's health and, you know, we, we helped him out and made sure, you know, he was all right and he was, you know, all good. And I think he understood why we had to send him home. Um, he couldn't continue the movie and, you know, uh, but it was a scary thing to experience. Well, you know, getting back to what we was briefly talking about before about your, you know, you working with musicians and stuff like that. Can you ever see yourself doing a sci-fi musical or adapting Cowboys vs. Dinosaurs as, as, as a sci-fi musical, maybe? You know, it's interesting. I, I love musicals. I actually uh, I worked on the revival of Guys and Dolls on Broadway, and we actually got nominated for a Tony for some of our production design work, the team uh, that I was a part of. So... I love musicals. I love sci-fi, but it kind of sounds like tuna fish ice cream to me. Like, you know, like I love like tuna and I love ice cream, but tuna fish ice cream sounds pretty bad. So I'm going to go with like, no, (laughs) I will give it the caveat. I just directed a a kid's movie, which I had a ton of fun with. And uh, it was a talking dog movie. And I do have a a concept that I've written uh, that I've been working on that involves music and dogs. So that could be pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a howling success, maybe. Mm. Yep. Sorry, I that. love it. I love it. We got to use that, Ian. That's great. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really, I'm really terrible with puns. It's just a bad habit of mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But, you know, so like, I just thought I'd ask that one because um, obviously we've had the uh, musical Buffy episode, we've had, you know, and, and, and stuff like that happen in the past. And, you know, I, I'm so like, I'm kind of on the fence. I'm not sure whether they work or not, really. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think it would take the right music, uh, you know, the right kind of inspiration. But I, I could see it being cool. I thought it was very cool how uh, the new Mad Max incorporated some music and some, you know, electric guitar uh, the double guitar in the film, and I thought that was very cool incorporation. You've seen that, I think, uh, a lot lately in movies, whether it be Birdman, where you actually see the, the person playing the drums within the scene. And, you know, music, uh, I think, really is the gateway to so many of the emotions you feel in a particular scene as an audience member. So incorporating that in a larger way, I think, is uh, attractive. Um, but, you know, doing it with the right uh, hand is also equally as important. Well, you've done, a, you've done, you've done music, you know, shows um, to do music. Um, you've done a bit of crime um, with, with sensing, sensing Murder and um, you've done sci-fi. Um, are there any other, other song like genres that you'd, that you'd like to song like try your hand at? You know, I would love to do a straight-up action movie. Uh, I've sort of done a straight-up action movie very early in my career with a movie called Final Engagement, but that was micro, micro budget. Uh, I love action films. Uh, I love comedies. Um, but honestly, right now I'm really turned on by uh, doing these kids' movies. I, I just did this talking dog film, and it was so much fun to go to work every day where, like, my cast was a nine-year-old and a, you know, a shih tzu or a, a husky, it was hilarious. I mean, like, how do you, like, actually, like, you know, take that seriously? And yet you can't have a bad day because these kids are having so much fun and the dogs are having so much fun. And the vibe of the crew uh, was very different than, you know, working on a, a film like, let's say, Cowboys, where they're all adults and come to work six in the morning and they're kind of grumpy or whatever. You know, you show up to work at like, you know, eight o'clock in the morning. And it's like a nine and 11 year old. And it's uh, they're sort of jacked. So, yeah. Uh, Hopefully, I get a chance to continue making some family films. That that that'd be fun to see. I mean, you know, um, and you know, fam- family films are something I always like to enjoy. Um, whether I'm with family or on my own, they're always good fun. Um, I believe you actually had a, a bit of a role to play in 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 directing the last Die Hard movie. Yeah, I was involved in uh, some of the visual effects uh, in Die Hard. Um, as I said, I spent many years as a uh, entertainment agent, which was a, a great experience uh, for me because it really helped me learn the business, you know, show business. It truly is a business. And I had always been attractive to the creative side. My time as an agent uh, lent me the opportunities to really hone my business skills and understand how movies are made and distributed and eventually make money, uh, hopefully. And as an agent, I represented a wonderful uh, cinematographer who had this unique access to the Secret Service uh, in Washington, D.C. And he was actually allowed to film uh, motorcades, presidential motorcades and things on the White House grounds that no one else really had the clearance to do. And since I had the relationship with him, I was able to produce some uh, elements for the Die Hard film. And it was very cool. I think it gives it a you know a different air of authenticity when you're actually shooting the the genuine article. So uh, it was a great experience, and uh, you know opened uh, some other doors uh, that I was able to get involved with with visual effects. So it was a lot of fun. Cool. Oh, you've worked with quite a few different people thus far in your career. Are there any other? Are there any other producers, actors, musicians that you'd maybe love to have the chance to work with? 
Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I'd love to, you know, Jim Cameron, you know, I respect so much. I think, you know, he's got this singular vision that is almost Steve Jobs-like. You know, he's hated and loved and his work is celebrated. And I think there's a lot to be learned from people who have such uh, strong visions and are successful at getting those visions through because, you know, he's there are plenty of people who are singular in vision but aren't successful. Um, and you know, I've, uh, I've experienced firsthand, you know, how many times I have to compromise and adapt. Um, and yet I respect so much, uh, the, the work of, let's say a, a Jim Cameron or someone like that. Um, you know, because they've been able to stay true and, you know, relatively not have to compromise, uh, too much to, uh, make their art, which is, uh, I think very, very cool. Um, but God, yeah, there's a laundry list. I mean, I'd love to work with Cameron Crow. I think his work is incredible, and uh, I've had the chance to work with uh, closely with some people who've been involved with him in music, and uh, I think he's a very interesting filmmaker. So, um, you know, for me, it's about telling stories that are, uh, I don't know, a contribution, you know, to uh, you know people and the people that watch them. So. You know, I hope uh, many years from now, when people look back at my body at work, the thing they take away is that uh, the stories I told were a contribution of their lives or their human experience. Uh, that would be satisfying to me. And, you know, collaborating with people who have done that uh, would be very cool. Yeah. I mean, um, I've got to admit, I'm a, I'm a fan of James Cameron's work. I, I prefer his earlier stuff, though. I, I love The Abyss. Yeah, The Abyss is great. Have you ever seen The Making of The Abyss? Um, I, I, I hate to say that I haven't, you know, I've probably caught bits and bobs of it, um, you know, coming and going, but, you know, I, I, I just love the, love the film generally. I've seen a director's cut. There's a, there's a great scene in the making of where he locks everybody in the, like the pit inside, like the tank where they're filming and won't let them out until they're like done with the scene or he gets it the way he wants. And everyone's like having mutiny and like, you know, we're quitting and this and that. And he basically says, well, good luck. You know, I locked the tank. So we're going to finish it my way. And as a young filmmaker, I remember watching that at 17. It was probably the worst possible thing I could see. Cause I was like, Oh, this is what I got to do. And it's taken many years of wonderful teachers and great uh, rehabilitation to become a, a director that people actually listen to. Because when I started making movies, let's say 20, I was like, you know, taking the attitude, well, fuck you. I'll just, you know, lock you in this room and make you do it my way. <laughs> so, uh, thankfully, uh, th thankfully, I, I think I've been uh, lots of yoga and uh, rehabilitation from a wonderful directing and acting coach, uh, Judith Weston, who I had a chance to study with and has taught me how to uh, communicate in ways that are way more effective uh but uh yeah it's uh, it's been a fun ride and eh. yeah <laughs> I, I, this is the this is awesome i think cameron was probably just after the people's facial expressions you know you had a lot in the tank yeah you know, definitely. because they're getting I mean, so annoyed know. and agitated after those facial expressions <laughs> You know, I, uh, I remember my first movie I did um, was this movie called Final Engagement. And there was a scene where this uh, woman, she was going to get forced into a marriage. Like it was the daughter of a crime lord. And uh, she was checking into her room. We were shooting at this resort. And one of the PAs had this teddy bear. And I said, what is that? And he said, oh, it's special. It's like Arlene's teddy bear. So I purposely stole Arlene's teddy bear, this wonderful actress named Arlene Tour, who I put through hell. 
And I stole her teddy bear so she'd be super agitated the next day when we had to shoot the scene. And it didn't work out because she was just a mess. She couldn't sleep without the bear, and she was just pissed. But we kept sending her, like, photos, like the bear would be at the craft service table or the bear would be at the back of the truck. So she knew the bear was around, but she couldn't find the bear. And I thought, oh, this will be great. And she'll be, like, so messed up. Like, you know, it'll give this great performance. So, yeah, don't do that. Young filmmakers, if you're listening, don't do that kind of shit. That doesn't help you. So, you know, did you send her a photograph of um, sort of like just a hand with a gun pointed to the bear's head saying perform or the bear gets it? That's it. <laughs> like we, it was before like text messaging, so we had Polaroids. So there'd be like Polaroids hanging out of like the bear, like in all sorts of crazy situations. I mean, I think, you know, one of the lead actors bet the t- teddy bear over. I mean, it was bad. It was getting out of control. I, I guess if you used to do that now, you'd probably splice together a very quick YouTube video of the bear in different locations, interacting with different people. Indeed, indeed. It was it was fun on the day, I have to say that. You know, it was one of these great learning filmmaking experiences of, you know, how not to do things. Don't torture your actress just because the scene asks for, you know, the actress to be tortured. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, um, you, you, you mentioned um, um, the kid, a kid's movie that you're working on. Um, um, do you have any other projects uh, that you'd like to sort of touch on? Yeah, I got a couple of cool movies in the works. Uh, we're doing a romantic comedy uh, coming up next. Uh, so that should be a lot of fun. It actually involves uh, dogs. And uh, it's uh, kind of a remake of The Parent Trap. So I'd say that's the, the next picture up on board. And probably audiences will get to experience Timber the Treasure Dog, which is the film I just directed. It's coming out later this summer. Um, so it's kind of like Goonies with talking dogs. So if you're a fan of Goonies, uh, you should dig this movie. And uh, yeah, hopefully uh, the ride continues. Mm, yeah, cool. Well, I, I love talking dogs, so I'll definitely love for that one. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> awesome. I, I, lo- I love films with talking animals. Um, you know, I, I, I really love that cats versus dog film. Dogs film. Do you remember that one? I do. I do. And you'll like this one too because I wrote some music for it. I actually wrote the theme song. That's uh, in Timber the Treasure Dog. Uh, much of the chagrin of my crew, because I would sing it every day on set. But uh, some wonderful uh, musicians uh, that I'm friends with actually turned it into a very cool song. So you get to hear my musical talents as well as my directing skills of uh, dogs cool. uh, in this next picture. Yeah, well, I can definitely relate to that, because I've been driving a few friends nuts with some riffs that I've come up with on the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> right on yeah so um, anyway uh, Ari it's been great having you on the show um, and um, you know hopefully you know may- maybe maybe we can bring you on again next year if you've got other projects you know, like you'd like, so like, uh, like to talk about then you know hopefully uh, Cowboys vs. Dinosaurs Part 2 is uh, ready to go next year so uh, the fans, I hope they enjoy the film and uh, appreciate being on the show. And I love hearing from the fans. So you can get us on Twitter uh, or Oracle Film. Uh, love responding to all our fans. And uh, yeah, feel free to reach out. You guys have a website? Uh, yeah, you can see our work at oraclefilm.com and uh, also find us on Facebook. Okay, well, thanks again, Ari. It's been, been brilliant talking to you. I've really enjoyed myself. Thank you, Ian. It's been a pleasure. Remember when science fiction drama envisioned stories that were happening where no one had gone before, discovering and exploring other worlds far, far away? While many of these series and films became cult classics, somewhere along the way, 
this genre got lost. Imagine if there was a place where you could go watch exciting new space opera series made specifically for the niche audience that you are. Imagine if this place was conducted by a team as passionate as you about science fiction and who would use all their background experience to make sure you get the best entertainment possible. SOS is a not-for-profit independent production facility that brings together writers, special effects wizards, and other creative talent from around the world who've worked on some of the most recognizable and respected science fiction franchises. So throw away your remote control and get real control by joining the Space Opera Society right now. With as little as one dollar, you can change the future of entertainment today. For more information, please visit our website, which is, of course, spaceoperasociety.com, where all your questions will be answered in our frequently asked questions page, and don't miss our short video presentation from some of our space opera series in development. I'm going to step off the limb. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. It's science fiction that will blow your mind. This is SFP now. And that's about it for this week. Um, just say, if you found us via our um, posting on Twitter... Um, if you want to, you can actually subscribe to the channel and never have to miss an episode again. Um, if you go into um, iTunes and just type in Sci-Fi Pulse Radio, we'll come right up there and you can subscribe to us that way. Um, hope you enjoyed the show. We've got lots of, uh, lots of great things lined up over the next few weeks, so uh, please stay tuned. That's all for today. Bye.